My name is Keith Shibero, and I'm a psychiatrist at the Northport VA Medical Center in Northport, New York. Today we're going to talk about the topic, Suicide Prevention, Screening, Assessment, and Resources for Practitioners. I have no disclosures. Today we're going to talk about what really is a crisis in America. It's something that we really don't talk about much in our day-to-day lives, Unless it affects us personally, we may hear about a celebrity suicide and the media focuses on it for a day or two. But for the impact that it has on our society and how common it is, it's something that we should talk about much more. And I want today to be a a conversation more than a lecture because the only way that we're really going to address this crisis is together having these conversations and talking with the people around us. Now, suicide is increasing in the United States. One person every 13 minutes loses their lives to suicide. And a new data by the CDC showed that 54% of people who died by suicide did not have a known or documented mental health condition, and thus they weren't in mental health treatment, which really emphasizes the importance of identifying the risks and symptoms of suicide and then being able to provide resources to that person. So together we can save lives by recognizing the signs and symptoms of somebody with an increased risk of suicide. We can together decrease the stigma of mental illness that really hinders people's ability to access treatment or ask for help. Uh, Sometimes mental illness is thought of as as a character defect, that there's something wrong with the person as opposed to thinking of it as a disease. And that's something that we need to to work on as a society. And we can be at the forefront of that. We have to learn how to screen patients routinely in daily practice. Again, because these people aren't reaching mental health. And together, we can save patients. We can save family members and friends. And because of how common it is, I have no doubt that somebody listening to this lecture, talk, will recognize symptoms in themselves. And I hope that at the end of this talk, they'll use the resources and reach out to get help for themselves as well. The objectives for today's talk, discussion, we're going to review the CDC and VA suicide statistics. We're going to understand factors that increase risk for suicide. We're going to understand factors that mitigate the risk for suicide. We're going to discuss the stigma of mental illness and how it hinders discussion about suicide in our society. We're going to review screening tools for suicide risk you can implement in your practice. And we're going to review suicide prevention resources. We have to start out by defining a few terms so that we're all on the same page going forward about what we're talking about and what we're not talking about. So the first term, suicide, is defined as death caused by self-directed injurious behavior with an intent to die as a result of the behavior. And that's the key phrase in there, intent to die. So what we're not talking about are people who die from accidental injury. And we're not talking about people who may die from a drug overdose. Now, we all know that the heroin epidemic in this country is awful. And and we lose so many lives to the heroin epidemic. And there can be a relation between heroin use and heroin overdose and suicide. But if the person didn't have an intent to die when they, when, they, when they used that drug, then we're not including that in the statistics for suicide. 
The second term is suicide attempt, a non-fatal, self-directed, potentially injurious behavior with an intent to die as a result of the behavior. Now, the person doesn't actually actually have to get harmed um, for it to be characterized as a suicide attempt. Just the fact that they took an action with an intent to die would meet that criteria. And the last definition is suicidal ideation. And this is thinking about, considering, or planning suicide. The CDC published statistics in June of 2018 that were really eye-opening. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. 45,000 people die by suicide each year. 54% of people who die by suicide didn't have a known or documented mental health condition and weren't in treatment, as we just talked about. Suicide rates went up more than 30% in half of states from 1999 to 2016. I mean, that's really just a staggering figure. And when they looked at age-adjusted rates of suicide among females, increased by 50% and among males by 21%. And we'll talk later that the suicide rate for males is about 3.5 times higher than it is for females. But what a big jump over the past 16 or so years in the female suicide rate. And here are some veteran VA suicide statistics. Veterans as a group are at a higher risk of suicide, male and female. And these are staggering numbers. About 20 to 21 veterans or active duty service members commit suicide each day. We lose 20 to 21 people who serve our country or or have served our country. And in 2015, veterans made up 8.3% of the total adult population, but accounted for 14.3% of adult suicides. So those are big numbers. And don't forget about our older veterans. They're also at high risk for suicide. Um, And so we're going to talk about how we do screenings at the VA later in this talk. With the next few slides, we're going to talk about characteristics of persons more likely to commit suicide, uh, factors that increase the likelihood of of suicide risk, uh, factors that mitigate suicide risk. And uh, just want to say ahead of all these slides that, of of course, this is not an exhaustive list, but also a patient doesn't have to have all of these things. And so it's really more for education. I think it's good that people know what the warning signs are for uh, people who could be at risk for uh, suicide um, just in general. And as we go through them, you may think in your mind about a patient who you've seen or a family member or a friend who may be exhibiting these types of things. So it may be helpful uh, for you in many different ways. Um, but let's go down the list. So characteristics of persons more likely to commit suicide. Uh, men are uh, 3.5, three times more likely than women to die by suicide. Um, women actually attempt more than men, um, but men uh, die by suicide more than women. Um, middle age, 45 to 54, uh, is the highest rate of suicide uh, in this country now, based on the most recent statistics. Caucasian is a higher risk. Middle-aged Caucasian males account for 7 out of 10 suicides in 2016, in the most recent data. Also, there's an increased risk, not as high for Caucasian, but Pretty close for American Indians and uh, Alaska Natives. Other characteristics, older, so greater than 65 years old, are increased risk. And over 85 years old is the second highest uh, rate based on the most recent statistics. 
prior suicide attempts will increase uh, the risk of somebody attempting another suicide attempt. And that makes sense. If people have gone through the process, uh, it makes it uh, they, they cross that threshold, they cross that barrier. Uh, it makes it easier or, or less or not as hard to cross that barrier in the future. Um, veterans at higher risk, active duty service members have a higher suicide risk than the general population. People in um, the justice and child welfare settings, um, LGBTQ, particularly youth, but the, the LGBTQ population is at increased risk. Uh, unmarried or lives alone, uh, a psychiatric comorbidity, a medical comorbidity uh, and or chronic pain, uh, particularly chronic pain, um, can increase suicide risk. Traumatic brain injury, drug alcohol abuse, particularly if it's, if it's worsening, if, if it's increasing. A family history of suicide, um, there, there are some genetic uh, links, um, but there are, there are no pathognomonic genetic links. Uh, think of it like, like diabetes. There's a genetic contribution, but it's not preordained. Um, people can take care of themselves and, and may not uh, uh, manifest that risk. So somebody who has a family history of suicide, it may be more uh, cognizant for them to, to um, be more watchful, maybe be in treatment, but doesn't mean that they're going to uh, do the same thing that a family member did. And then a family history of child maltreatment. This slide is going to go through uh, increased risk signs and, and indicators. Um, the last slide was more characteristics that we sometimes call uh, static factors, the things that are really not um, able, you're not able to really change them. Um, their male, their uh, age, uh, their um, history from the past, and these are going to be more things that they're that they're experiencing now, symptoms or um, behaviors in this particular slide. So hopelessness, feeling worthless, despair, that's a big predictor, um, and that's something you want to watch for. Um, again, a patient may not have all of these things. Withdrawing from family, friends, and isolating, they may say that they feel alone, that they're not connected. Um, feeling like a burden to others, talking about death. They may not specifically say they want to take their life, but they're, they're, they're talking about uh, maybe dying in their sleep or that uh, life, that the world would be better off without them or that their family would be better off without them. Rage, anger, talking about seeking revenge, engaging in risky behaviors, uh, increased anxiety, agitation, and, and particularly unable to sleep. You know, people who are up at night and they're just kind of tossing and turning and um, very frustrated, feeling trapped like there's no way out um, of a situation or just in general. Chronic pain, psychosis, so if somebody's having command hallucinations, a voice that's in their head telling them over and over again, you know, to hurt yourself, to cut yourself, to kill yourself, um, that uh, can be uh, increase the risk. Uh, giving away possessions, so things that they have that are valuable and, and then all of a sudden they're giving them away to people. Um, it's a sign. Uh, increase in drug and alcohol use, that's a, a big indicator. Mood changes, so somebody could have major depressive disorder, which increases, which has a, a risk of suicide. Um, suicidal thoughts is one of the criteria um, that, you can, uh, that you have in that disorder. And this is something that's hard for some people to, to fully grasp, but this aspect of feeling relief or sudden improvement. So somebody who really is always talking about despair and hopeless and, and major, and then all of a sudden they just look fine. 
Uh, they look good. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's kind of a scary thought, but in a, in a sense, they came to some peace with the fact that they're going to kill themselves, that they're going to leave um, this world. And in that moment, they can actually look comforted, you know, because they've kind of gone over that hurdle in their mind and they've, they've, they've set the plan. And so if you see somebody like that, don't always assume that now they're fine, that that could be actually a, a warning sign. Um, if somebody's really been chronically depressed and down and then suddenly is fine or appears to be fine, uh, they're not fine. Um, feeling that there's no reason to live, no sense of purpose. That's a big, that's a big thing. This, this feeling of sense of purpose that when you get up in the morning that there's something for you, uh, in this world and some reason for you to be here. Loss, it could be, uh, social loss, a, a work loss, a financial loss in terms of relationships and things like that. Um, and that could change somebody's sense of purpose. Presence of firearms or seeking lethal means is concerning. Firearms account for 51% of all suicides in 2016. There are many factors that contribute to suicide risk. I want to highlight a few of them. You know, unfortunately, you know, suicide, it's, it's very complex. There's a lot of confounding and converging factors that come into play. And it, and, and it usually is in one reason. You know, people want to always after the fact, say, why did somebody take their life? And they're looking for the reason. Um, and, and many times it's a whole combination of things that we've already talked about and we're going to talk about now. But there have been some social factors or events that have been associated with increased risk of suicide. And I want to highlight a couple of them and go through these. So a crisis in the past or upcoming two weeks, a physical health problem, usually related to chronic pain issues, criminal legal problem, loss of housing, job financial issues. Those are uh, been suggestive as to why maybe the, the, the highest rate of suicide now is for middle-aged people, people aged 45 to 54, and why the suicide rate for women over the past 18 years or so has gone up by 50%. Issues with uh, economic problems, uh, the upturns and the downturns, single, single parents or two people in a household both have to work uh, multiple jobs in order to support the household or the family or themselves. And it's very stressful. And all of these things can lead to uh, people becoming depressed, right? And then depression increasing the risk of suicide or even just by themselves, the factors themselves can increase the risk. And, and there are a couple other ones I really want to highlight a little bit more. So problematic substance use. So by itself, as we mentioned, increased risk of suicide when people are increasing the use of drugs and alcohol. But there's also an increased risk when people look at those things as a lethal means. So the opioid crisis has a double-edged effect. In one sense, it can increase risk of suicide because people may be thinking uh, irrationally or if people are depressed and then they're using drugs, they're, they're, they're disinhibited and more likely to do something impulsive. But also, at the same time, it increases the access to lethal means. So if people have access to a bulk of heroin, not only does heroin use lead to mental health issues and may lead to suicide risk, but also gives somebody access to something like lethal means. So the same, same idea as firearms. You know, having access to lethal means, they make that attempt, it's lethal. Somebody has a bulk of heroin around because they're using recreationally or they have a, a huge substance abuse problem like we do with this huge opioid epidemic, which deserves a whole talk unto itself, and I don't want to minimize that. But if somebody then forms that intent to die, which, remember, is a requirement for it to be an actual suicide, if they have a bag of heroin lying around, that can be lethal means, and so that's why it can be linked in a, in a double-edged sword way to this. And I also want to highlight recent recent loss because people will ask me, 
many times, where's the line between bereavement, normal bereavement, when somebody loses somebody, and depression? And and sometimes bereavement can, can merge into depression when it gets really severe. But typically, people with bereavement, when it comes to suicidal thoughts or thoughts about death or dying, people with bereavement might have thoughts about one day being reunited with the person they lost or want to be buried next to the person they lost, but they don't have thoughts to want to kill themselves. When they do, I mean, if they do, it's beyond bereavement and they need mental health help and can be just as high risk as other people we talked about. They need to get immediate help. So somebody having thoughts about killing themselves, even after a horrible loss that they experienced, can also require immediate attention. So that's a little bit of a distinction, you know, because people in bereavement can appear depressed. You know, they can be sad. They can they can have problems maybe not eating so well, not sleeping so well, uh, going through a severe loss. But when it gets to the point when it's that severe, we're beyond bereavement and they need to get professional help. This slide shows a, a list of factors that mitigate the risk for suicide. Now, when I say mitigate, it doesn't wipe away the risk, but it sort of offsets that risk. So people still have the risk. But these are things that sort of um, decrease the likelihood that they may act on that risk. You still have to be careful um, and you don't take away the risk completely because there can be things that will overwhelm the mitigating factors. But these are factors that can be helpful, definitely um, therapeutically. And, and people will say that um, they won't commit suicide because of some of the things that are on this list. So let's go through it. So a patient may say, uh, you know, yeah, I'm having thoughts of killing myself, but I would never do it because, right? And they may say, I'm very religious, you know, my religious beliefs, and I feel that I'll, I'll go to hell if I, if, I, if I commit suicide, so I'd never do it. Or I have children, um, and I would never do that to my, my children. I would never do that to my family. So having dependent others, um, life satisfaction, positive social support, family and community support. You can see a lot of these have to do with connectedness, people feeling connected to something, that there's a bigger picture beyond them. And it doesn't have to be religion. It could be something that, you know, that they're connected to. It could be a, a bowling league, community support, uh, uh, friends. They go to the gym together. Uh, a veteran community organizations, uh, different types of uh, country clubs. You're feeling connected to a group of people and that sort of gives you a purpose. Um, you may like the work that you do, and that includes life satisfaction. Reality testing, right? They're, they're not psychotic. They're, 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 they understand sort of the aspect of things that are going on, and, and, and it makes sense. They have positive coping skills. You know people that have really good coping skills and people that get overwhelmed very easily, so people who can sort of process the, the stress or process the situations better than others um, is a mitigating factor. A positive problem-solving skills. And then definitely positive therapeutic relationships. So people who are in treatment, maybe they have a therapist, um, maybe it's their primary care doctor, maybe it's uh, a nurse that they, that they see. It could be a clerk at the desk, you know, and having those positive therapeutic relationships uh, is also a mitigating factor. There are many different types of screening procedures to assess the risk of common mental illnesses and suicide risk. And you can find other examples in the resource section of this lecture at the end. But I'm going to go through the process that the VA uses in 2018 just for example purposes. And you can model your practice in any way that you want to uh, based on the information we go through. 
So basically, at the VA, what happens is when a patient comes in to see somebody in primary care or in the mental health clinic, the triage nurse is going to do a depression screen and a post-traumatic stress disorder screen as part of that triage process. The depression screen is called PHQ-2, and it's composed of two questions. The post-traumatic stress disorder screen is called the PCPTSD. It's five questions. And then if either of these two are positive, then when the patient goes and sees the provider, they'll do the suicide screen. If both of these are negative screens, then nothing further needs to be done. This is the patient health, health questionnaire 9, also called the PHQ-9. I put it up here just for demonstrative purposes so you can see where the PHQ comes from. The PHQ-2, patient health questionnaire 2, is just the first two questions of the PHQ-9. So the PHQ-2, done by the triage nurse, is composed of two questions. And it states, over the past two weeks, how often have you been bothered by any of the following problems? And then the patient will self-report, one, little interest or pleasure in doing things, and that's scored zero to three, as you can see on the chart. And the second question is, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless? And again, it's scored zero through three. If the total score is three or higher, that's considered a positive screen for us. The PCPTSD5 screen is a screen for post-traumatic stress disorder, also a screen that can be done by the nurse triage before the patient comes in to see the provider. And um, what basically happens with this screen is that there's a little portion that's red, and then there are going to be follow-up questions if the patient answers the first question uh, yes. So the screen states, sometimes things happen to people that are unusually or especially frightening, horrible, or traumatic. For example, a serious accident or fire, a physical or sexual assault or abuse, an earthquake or flood, a war, seeing someone be killed or seriously injured, having a loved one die through homicide or suicide. And then the first question that asked, that's asked is, have you ever experienced this kind of event? If the patient states no, then the screen is negative. If the patient states yes, then we move on to the next set of questions on the next slide. And the second part asks the following. In the past month, have you, and there are five yes-no questions that follow, had nightmares about the event or thought about the event when you did not want to, tried hard not to think about the event or went out of your way to avoid situations that reminded you of the event, been consistently on guard, watchful, or easily startled, felt numb or detached from people, activities, or your surroundings, felt guilty or unable to stop blaming yourself or others for the event or any problems the event may have caused. Now, if a patient scores three or more yes responses, that's considered a positive screen for PTSD. If either the depression or PTSD screen positive from the triage nurse evaluation, then the provider is going to be uh, alerted to do the suicide risk evaluation. Now, this is a very brief suicide risk evaluation. It's composed of four questions. Um, in mental health, when we see somebody, we do a suicide risk assessment. It's much more lengthy. There's a lot of other questions. It actually incorporates a lot of the factors that I just reviewed um, when we talked about somebody who may be at increased risk. But for a busy primary care provider, um, you know, you're not going to want to do that entire thing. So these are just quick questions you can ask um, to get a sense of where the patient's at, having just screened positive for one or either of the two screenings. So are you feeling hopeless about the present or future? Have you had thoughts about taking your life? Now, if the patient says yes, 
then you're going to ask, when did you have these thoughts and do you have a plan to take your life? And then the, the last question is, have you ha ever had a suicide attempt? A yes question to any of these questions is a positive screen. So now I'm sure at this point you're all wondering after going through all those screening questions, what do you do? What do you do if you have a positive evaluation? What do you do if you have a, a negative evaluation? Uh, what referrals do you make? Um, and obviously, it's kind of hard to give somebody full clinical uh, a judgment uh, over a PowerPoint presentation. But I'm going to try to narrow down a little bit of guidelines that can be helpful to you um, going forward. So if the suicide risk evaluation is negative, obviously the PTSD or the depression scale was positive, and so it's appropriate to refer the patient for a mental health referral. Um, they can benefit for treatment. Um, you, you want to provide some suicide prevention resources. There's a wallet card, um, which I will be talking about later in the presentation, that uh, gives them that resource if they need to use that to make a phone call, um, if they're in a crisis, or if suicidal thoughts should uh, appear at some point. But um, they definitely can benefit from treatment. There are medications, there's psychotherapy. Um, if they're using substance or alcohol, uh, there can be treatments for that. So making an, a, a referral for them if they're, if they're interested in doing that. And then follow up with the patient on subsequent visits to see how they're doing. Uh, you know, redo the suicide risk evaluation and see if anything has changed. Now, if the suicide risk evaluation is positive, that makes it a little bit more complicated, obviously, because the patient is having these uh, thoughts or, uh, or more than the thoughts. Again, you've got to use your clinical judgment, but in general, um, you want to have an expedited consultation referral for mental health assessment and follow-up, um, which may include a 911 or ambulance or emergency room if the patient is acutely suicidal. This is not something you kind of want to wait on. Um, if you're in a big facility like, like I am at the VA, we have uh, mental health walk-in clinics. We have, you know, psychiatrists on call. So it's, it's very easy. We even have psychiatrists in primary care clinic that can come in to the room. So in that sense, in an academic facility, it's going to be easier. In private practice, it's a little harder, but you may have somebody you, you routinely refer to that you could call to consult with um, and maybe get somebody an expedited appointment. And again, if somebody's acutely suicidal, they need to go uh, inpatient. Um, most likely, uh, at least to the very least, being evaluated, you know, uh, in, 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 a, in an emergent setting. Um, you can enlist uh, others in the family, if possible, friends, a spouse, a partner, um, anybody that the patient is close to, that they give you permission to speak with. They may be in the waiting room. So that's, again, another helpful tool. Um, you want to promote safe and supportive environments, uh, you're going to ask about lethal means. Uh, do they have firearms? Uh, do they have a stockpile of medications? Uh, if they're using drugs, do they have a you know stockpile of uh, heroin or or any type of drug that could be um, uh, lethal? And then of course, the same thing. You want to follow up with the patient, no matter what you end up doing, you know, to make sure that they end up into safe place. Um, this is something you may or may not do. It's something we do in mental health, but something called suicide safety planning. And there it's a, it's a, it's a template, but it's, it's custom to the patient. So they uh, will, as part of this template, identify uh, things in their life that will potentially bring, bring out those suicidal thoughts. And so they can write down these triggers. Um, they'll also identify things, and, and you write these into the template, um, things that, 
they could do to to offset that. There may be activities or things that they can do that sort of make those thoughts decrease. Also, uh, you'll you'll get information from the patient on who they could contact if they should have any of these types of thoughts. It may be a sponsor. It could be a, a spouse. It could be a friend, uh, a, a son or a daughter, um, a close friend. And then they, you put the name and you put the telephone number. The patient you know gives you that information. And then, of course, on there will be the number for... Um, for their medical provider, that could be their uh, psychiatric provider if they have one, um, and then of course the uh, suicide prevention resources, which I'm going to talk about in upcoming slides, about um, uh, crisis hotlines, um, as well as uh, you know going to the emergency room if, if these things should should occur. And this is something that you can make a copy for the chart. We have it done electronically, but you actually give a copy to the patient, and the patient ca uh, carries that with them, and it's actually very helpful. Uh, for them, I know a lot of patients that that have that uh, that I see, and they they hold it with them, and um, it t from time to time they may look at it, and that and it's something that they can utilize. And then in addition, you can give them uh, the wallet card uh, that we're going to talk about in the next in the coming slides for the the National Suicide Lifeline. And then the last point here is with with everything, you always want to try to decrease the stigma of mental health um, that prevents people from seeking treatment. Mental health disorders are very common. Uh, there are a lot of people that are on medications that are in therapy and, uh, you know, giving the patient hope and telling them that these are these are treatable illnesses, that that the thoughts that they have are um, are parts of illness. And, you know, it, it, it normalizes it, it humanizes it. Um, and that's helpful. And this is just a slide to go over some basic therapeutic rapport techniques that you can use when having any of these types of conversations or even asking those screening questions can be very helpful and actually might make it more likely the patient is going to be a little bit more honest with them. Um, things like using active listening, so you're not talking over the patient, you're giving good eye contact. Um, if you can sit, if you have the ability to sit, that's great, you know, so you can be at eye level with the patient. Um, even if you spend the exact amount of time as you would standing, sitting, it, it, they've done studies to show that when the, the provider sits down, it, it, it somehow ta uh, takes on a, a whole different ambience of the interaction with the patient, um, and they rate it as being a better interaction. Um, you want to avoid minimizing the perception of the problems, you know, say, making comments like, oh, oh just pull yourself out of it, um, you're just going through some blues, you know, oh, things are going to be fine, everything's going to get better, you know. Uh, you want to be non-judgmental, validate the person's feelings that that is maybe is a stressful situation, that they did go through a loss, that they, they are feeling depression or feeling depressed, and that these are things that uh, many people have, and it's very common, and that people can get help. And you're speaking in a calm, friendly, reassuring manner. You're demonstrating empathy by not only your, your, your words, but also your, your uh, demeanor. Um, that's probably more important than the words in many respects, you know, the this, this sitting down, the eye contact, you know, just expressing that empathy and listening to what they say. Reiterating the importance of keeping them safe. I've had patients that I've had to call 911 on or uh, send them by ambulance, even, even put patients in the hospital against their will, and later have actually thanked me. Not all, but I've had many who have thanked me after because they, they understood that I cared. You know, imagine you have horrible physical pain. And nobody asks you how you are, and nobody tries to help you. I mean, it's, it, it's very similar with psychological pain, this despair that the people have, this hopelessness. The, you know, imagine you feel so horrible in this way, and nobody seems to 
to recognize it, and nobody seems to care, in a sense, by even identifying it or asking about it. And and, and, I, and I think it's helpful to think that way, you know, that if, if, if somebody came to you in excruciating pain, you know, think about how that would be in terms of a psychological pain that the person is going through with what is an illness, you know, and that is then leading them to have these suicidal thoughts. And then, of course, try to offer a sense of hope and bring them out of that feeling of being lonely. It's really an important thing that there there is hope, that there is purpose, um, and that you can help get them treatment. Five steps to help somebody at risk. One, you want to ask. Two, you want to keep them safe. Three, you want to be there. Four, you want to help them connect. And five, you want to follow up. And here's a slide that just shows the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. This is a 24-7 resource. It's actually for all people, but veterans can press one. It's the same number, and it gets it's gets, gets diverted to a different uh, system. But this is great. These are great things to have to hand out to patients. Uh, in the resource section on the last slide, I uh, give a link to, to uh, PDFs that have wild cards for these things. And also there are f resources where you can get uh, order things that are free from, from many of these organizations and have them in your office. This is posters, wallet cards. Um, these are very helpful things uh, to have out in your waiting room or give out to patients so that they know that this resource is available. This is a slide, as promised, that shows you some other resources that are available. As I mentioned, there's the Suicide Prevention Lifeline wallet cards. There's a link there. You can do that and print it right out yourself. Um, or you, there's a, a, a store there, and for free, they you can order the, the, the cards and posters and have them in your office. I also provided a couple of other links there that give you some more information if you want to delve more into this. Um, and then there are some international resources as well. So if there are people listening to this not in the United States, or if you have patients who do a lot of traveling, you might want to set them up with some of these resources by just giving them the number for you know different countries that have the same uh, type of resources that the United States may have. And this is the last slide, but here are the take-home points from this talk that we just had. Um, again, the suicide rates have increased in the United States from 1999 to 2016 in 49 states, increased by 30% or more in half of the states in the country. Middle age, which is 45 to 54 years old and older, 85 plus, have the highest suicide rate, rates according to the most recent data from the CDC with seven of 10 suicides by middle-aged Caucasian males in 2016. Although the suicide rate for males is 3.5% higher than females, the age-adjusted rate of suicide among females increased by 50% from 2000 to 2016. So that's just something to be aware of. 54% of suicides in 2016 did not have a known identified mental illness. Thus, they weren't in mental health treatment. And this highlights the importance of screening in primary care and other settings to identify those at risk and refer for mental health evaluation and treatment. Firearms are the means to greater than 50% of all suicides. So if, if somebody's at risk, being able to decrease uh, access to firearms is going to be important. Veterans have a significantly higher suicide rate than the general population if you treat veterans. There's a need for society to decrease the stigma of mental illness, and we went through examples of that. Again, think somebody with excruciating physical pain. You'd be there and want to get them help to decrease the pain. Somebody having a high degree of psychological pain, um, you'd want to get them help. And this is a, an illness that can be treated. It's a very common cause of death. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the country. And for some populations, it's the second leading cause of death. 
So, you know, being able to recognize, identify, and then refer somebody for treatment for suicide is very, very important. And you can save lives by doing this with your patients, family members, friends, very important. And then, of course, the last thing is ask. You know, it's very important to ask these questions. Um, you'll not, you won't make somebody think of suicide by asking questions. Thank you for taking part in the conversation we had together, talking about ways to address the crisis of suicide in America. Hopefully you found the information presented useful and you can apply it to your practice and may find it useful in your personal lives with family and friends.